There's more than one approach to choosing a niche, and the most common, of course, is choosing an industry to specialize in. But there are other approaches too, like choosing a particular deliverable or a kind of project that you work on. That's generally called horizontal uh, niching. We've even seen copywriters niche by the customer that they work with. Our guest for this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is Deanna Mayfield, and she told us about how she's adding a second horizontal niche to her business. We're going to let her tell you all about it in just a minute. But first, I want to introduce my guest host for this episode. That's Tiffany Engel. Hey, Tiffany. Hi, Rob. How's it going? Uh, it's going pretty well. Thank you for having me here. I'm really happy to uh, sit down and have this conversation with you today. Yeah, this is awesome. So Tiffany is a conversion copywriter. She's worked in the nonprofit sector, I think, for like seven years before starting her own business. Uh, she writes conversion copy and she has a newsletter called Authenticity is Addictive. If you want to be on that or receive that, go to Tiffany's website and sign up. Before we talk with Deanna, this episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Think Tank. That's our mastermind for copywriters and other marketers who want to do more in their business and their work. You know, maybe you have dreamed about creating a product or a podcast, or maybe you've thought about maybe starting an agency uh, or a product company. Maybe you want to become the best known copywriter in your niche, the person that high paying clients are always looking out for. That's the kind of thing that we help copywriters do in the Think Tank. Tiffany's actually a member of the Think Tank, a new member. Uh, to learn more, visit copywriterthinktank.com and maybe you can join this extraordinary group of business owners too. So let's jump into our interview with Deanna and find out more about her business and the clients that she works with. All right, so let's kick off with your story. How did you end up as a SaaS copywriter, conversion copywriter, um, PR expert, all the things? Yeah, so about six years ago, I was a stay-at-home mom, and I had had my first daughter. And now this is a controversial opinion, but I didn't want <laughs> to just teach a daughter, you know, this is what we do. We hope we marry a nice engineer that can pay all the bills. My sister-in-law gets pissed at me for saying that. But, you know, I was like, I didn't want to teach her. Like, what is that teaching her, right? Like, it's like, how is she going to, like, have a good life if she doesn't, like, find a good guy? Um, so I was like, okay, I really got to figure this money thing out. And when I had graduated college in 2009, it was the recession. Um, I come from like a, a blue collar family. Like my dad's a motorcycle salesman. Like I had no um, understanding of like talent, <laughs> like that businesses hire talent and that talent could be creative and you could make money for being creative. Uh, so there was just no kind of understanding of that. The fact that you could actually make money as a writer. I think a lot of writers have that right? Where you think it's like the starving artist thing. So I was, you know, like 26, I was trying to figure out like, how am I going to like make money? And I want to make money as a writer. And I want to show my daughter that you can, you know, make money doing what you love and what you're good at. Um, and so I started with editing, because <laughs> I was like afraid of like selling copywriting services. I kind of figured out what copywriting was, because I was like, somebody is writing the back of this shampoo bottle, who the heck is writing the back of the shampoo bottle is the coolest job ever. But I was like afraid, even though I understood what that 
what copywriting was, I was like, I'll just do editing. So I got a, a copy editing certification from uh, UC San Diego and then quickly realized that I was like terrible at editing. You have to be like very, you know, nitpicky. It's a completely different personality. Like to there's a difference between, you know, knowing where a comma goes and getting something ready for like actual like print publication. Um, and I got my first B of my life because I had got straight A's all through college. I got my first B in this copy editing certification. I was like, this is not the thing. So then I was like, all right, I'm going to do like blog writing. So I started pitching, you know, blog writing is a great start for a lot of copywriters. Started pitching um, local agencies to write blogs for their clients. And then it kind of just went from there, you know, how it goes. It's like, you got to just start pulling, pulling in clients. So I kind of did a lot of different things, email marketing, got into writing websites. And I was incentivized to grow my business super quickly because as a family, we decided to have my husband go back to school and get his PhD in um, architecture and engineering. And he has now uh, founded a sustainable construction and engineering startup that uh, takes kind of Roman architecture principles and is modernizing them to make structures last longer, right? Because Roman structures can last 2,000 years, ours can't. So his startup is all about making them earthquake safe and modern so that, you know, we have less construction waste. So solving the world's construction waste and longevity problem. So I had to go from being a stay-at-home mom to being a sole provider in just a few months. So I was hustling. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and then I picked tech as my niche kind of slowly but surely, like living in Northern California. I know, you know, name any big tech company. I know somebody from college who works there. And so my relationships just kind of started going in that direction of like, you know, SaaS and software. So that was very fortunate that I picked a profitable niche within just a few months of starting. I want to know more about the um, copy editing certificate. So I'm terrible at editing myself, but you know, what, what does it take to, to get a certificate in copy editing? What do you have to know? Or like, you know, what do you have to be able to do? Yeah. So um, every, um, you know, UC, the UC system is like the university of California. So it's like there's Berkeley and, you know, um, Irvine and all the, there's like, I think 11 or 12 UCs. And so they all have those like, um, continuation, like adult kind of continuation programs. So it's not like you're like in the, the bachelor's program. It's like, uh, it's like their extension. Um, so that was the one that I did. It was like UC San Diego extension and it was, um, $1,600 and it was a whole year. So, um, I was doing this for a whole year during, you know, kids nap time. Um, and so, yeah, you, we had to, you had to take all four classes. It was like four classes spread over a year. Um, and then, um, I think as long as you got, you know, I don't know if it was a C or a B, but as long as you got a certain grade in each, um, you know, class, then you got the certificate. Um, and so it's, you know, it's their UCSD extension certificate. And so that definitely gave me the confidence. I still think that certificates are great. Like when I started doing SEO blogs, I got the, um, a lot of people know this one. It's like seocopywriting.com. Um, 
Heather. She has a SEO copy certificate. I think it's a smart way to start because it gives you the confidence. And if you don't have like a portfolio or, you know, testimonials, it does give you something if you're, you know, pitching, cold pitching clients or getting started on a gig site like Upwork, which I did. Um, A lot of people hate Upwork, but I did do pretty well on Upwork for like two years. And I got my hourly rate up to like 175 before I left. Um, I would not use it now, but you know, it, it is a nice start. Like I said, I went from, you know, stay at home mom to sole provider in four months. So for me, Upwork was an important part of that jump. Can you talk a little bit more about Upwork? And I know you're, you know, you're off of it now. It's not part of your business now, but for copywriters who are on Upwork and want to grow fast, and they may hear you say four months, how you grew so fast. How did, how do I do it on Upwork? What are, what's some advice you would give them in that platform that would, could work today? Just keep working on making your profile really, really good so that you're getting invited to jobs as opposed to having to like fill out all of those applications. Like in the beginning, you know, um, you will have to be, you know, filling them out. Um, But just try to focus on, you know, your impact over effort. So just fill out the ones that are like easy, right? If somebody's asked like eight, you know, questions and they want a whole paragraph for everything, like, just skip those ones and and fill out the ones that are easy and then always make sure you're adding to your profile. So that could be, you know, having a great niche, having a specialization, having portfolio samples. Um, And then something that I did was I made my own portfolio samples before I had clients. So like when I was ready to jump from the editing to the writing side At that point, I didn't know that I wanted to do software. So what I actually did was write um, travel articles. Like um, one thing I wrote was, you know, five um, places to take kids in San Francisco. I don't remember what the exact headline was, but I basically made my own kid-friendly San Francisco travel article. And then I used that on Upwork and in cold email pitches. So I think that... There's, there's not really any reason why you can't write write anything, right? If you don't have clients yet, write an email sequence, write an email course, you know, write a website page, write a blog post, like, um, you know, make your own portfolio. So I did a few of those and added those to my Upwork um, profile. And then, of course, um, you know, there's just the truth that you you can't charge a ton in the beginning, right? Until you kind of have that confidence, you have that that portfolio. Um, like I started with like you know um, sixteen dollars an hour, which is like terrible, but I just raised it. Like I was just raising every like few weeks after that, you know. And and maybe that's not what other people should do, but but that's what I did. I started very low, and then I just was like raising my rates like every month or every, you know, very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that advice because uh, I think Upwork sometimes gets, you know, a, a bad reputation among writers. In fact, we've we've talked down about Upwork too, because it is a place where a lot of people get stuck working for low rates, working for bad clients. But I love that there are ways to make that work 
And the fact that you're able to go from you know $16 an hour to $175 an hour, yeah, it takes a little bit of time, but it's good to hear those success stories um, and especially the advice to create that portfolio before you even start working, I think is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. So that whole jump was like two years. That was um, like 2016 to 2018 was that 16 to 175, which is still pretty crazy, right? That's still pretty fast, two years. Um, and that did... Uh, you know, that, that did coincide with me picking my niche. So I would say I probably uh, niched down into SaaS maybe within like six months of starting my business. For a while, I just called it like tech copywriter because a lot of people weren't really using the word SaaS. The word SaaS was like very new at that point. Um, I think it really didn't get started using it or get it get used until maybe like 2014 or 2015. And it sounded silly. Like I can remember like telling my husband, like, I'm not going to call myself a SaaS copywriter. Like, what the heck is that? And then once I realized that like more and more people were using that word, I was like, okay, now I have to use this word. So, but the niche helps a lot, right? It's like picking, you know, people talk about that all the time, a profitable niche where people do pay good rates. That um, That's a big part of it. Okay. So I also want to ask about this transition period where you were the sole provider for your family. Like how, you know, how did you make that work? Balancing, basically starting your own business or running your own business. Um, you know, obviously your, your partner is off, you know, putting in tons of hours, starting their thing and not bringing any money. So how did you, you know, approach work? How were you pitching clients? Like, tell us the things that you were doing that really got you started. Yeah. So, um, Luckily, I had also done that SEO copywriting certificate, which gave me um, that confidence to share that it was going to be, you know, like worthwhile, right? That there was going to be some sort of like ROI at that point. Like now I do, you know, much more conversion copy and, you know, web pages and landing pages and A-B testing for SaaS. But at that point, I was like mostly SEO so I think it helped me to kind of raise my rates and have confidence because I knew there was like something valuable from it, you know? Um, so that could be anything. If it's like email, okay, you're going to grow your email list and, you know, increase your amount of leads, but just some way that you can sell, like, what is the point of this beyond just um, writing? So that helped a lot. And then also, you know, we worked on keeping our expenses really low um, the story gets a little crazier because during this whole thing, we were moving to Milan. Um, my husband got his PhD at the Polytechnic um, University of Milan, which is kind of like MIT of the MIT of Italy. So it's like one of the top engineering programs in the world. And so we were moving to um, Milan and I got pregnant with our second baby and I managed to save four month, a four month maternity leave within a year of starting my business. So I went full time April of 2016 and my second baby was born May 2017 and I started my business and saved enough for a four month paternity leave. So I was off from May to September. So we definitely kept our expenses low. Um, I use like a budgeting tool, you know, we only ate out like once a week. Um, I didn't shop at all. So I lived in Italy, but I didn't shop um, <laughs> being pregnant kind of helped because I was like, what's the, I'm not going to spend a bunch of money on yeah. maternity clothes, you know? <laughs> so being pregnant say, definitely helps yeah. with, uh, reducing, reducing shopping, reducing shopping. It really does because you're like, that's such a short period of time. Like, why do I want 
you know, all these clothes. So, but I was, I was definitely fearless with, um, with pitching, you know, with cold email. Um, and that again comes from that need to do it quickly. Um, you know, if I, if I was transitioning from a full-time job, you know, a lot of people make that transition over, you know, a year or two years or something. Um, but once we kind of made this, you know, decision, it was, yeah, it was very, very quick. And so, um, cold email was super, super important for me. So I would pitch agencies, um, and then companies, you know, directly. Definitely want to talk more about the pitching. Um, but before that, before we move on, let's just say I am a copywriter who hears you talking about how you saved four months of maternity leave and you did all this again so fast. Um, what advice would you give to someone who all of a sudden might feel that critical need to make a good amount of money fast because they are now the breadwinner of their family or, you know, there's some life change and now they need to pick it up and double their income. It sounds like one is, you know, reducing expenses, which makes complete sense. Um, what else would you say could work across the board? I would say um, to don't be tempted to take on anything because you need the money so badly. Sometimes when we really need the money, we actually make like bad business decisions um, because we're like, I just have to take anything that comes. Um, and I did do that for a while. Um, but then it's like, at some point you need to quickly um, set standards, whether that's like a certain company size. That was something that I started to do was like, get away from these new, you know, launching, right, businesses, um, businesses with no revenue. Uh, so start to set standards very quickly. I think that, yeah, people who, who need money fast, they'll, they'll keep their standards low for too long, because they're just afraid, you know. Um, and so also build up as much as you can try to build up that reserve of, you know, a few paychecks in advance, even if it's just working two weeks in advance of your pay, hopefully at some point you can get to working, you know, three months in advance. But even just if you're working two weeks in advance, then, you know, trust yourself like that you can say no to things and, and more things will come because the reality is like there's still such a need for copywriters. I haven't seen any any signs of slowing a slowdown, you know, in the market with like so many different people. So it's like, there's a lot out there for you and there's a fit for everyone. And it's basically you get to choose. Like, do you want to work with the stressed out, newly launching business with no revenue? Or do you want to work with somebody who's a little more dispassionate? Like I like working with clients where they get that marketing is testing. They're not expecting every single thing to work. They're expecting to test things. The emotional stress of those two things is night and day. And this is especially true in SaaS, where a new business costs a lot to make. <laughs> like you can spend, you know, three hundred thousand uh, dollars. Hopefully, if you hired the right development agency, it's going to be close to ninety. But you could spend, you know, three hundred to seven hundred thousand dollars to um, launch a new SaaS. Those people are so stressed out. 
so pretty quickly I was like, no, I'm not going to work with brand new products. It's just not worth it to me. Right. Like as a mom, you know, as somebody who I have bipolar disorder on the manic side, I'm open about that. It does mean that, you know what I mean? Stress can like trigger episodes, which makes it hard to sleep. It's not worth it for me to get involved with stressed out clients. So I work with companies that are either funded or they're already profitable. And I like them to have at least like 20 employees. If it's like 20 to a thousand, I don't like to go too big because then you get into all this, you know, corporate um, bureaucratic nightmares, (laughs) but like 20 to a thousand employees for a SaaS company um, is a good fit. And it's so easy to check that in LinkedIn. Um, And, you know, in Facebook, we're all in, you know, copywriting groups. I, I love your group. And we always see those posts that are like, oh, this client's not paying me or this is this and that blah, 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 blah. And so much of it is because you're working with a business owner that can't actually afford to work with you. They're working with you because they're they are stressed out and they want something to work and they don't have the time to do it themselves, but they can't actually afford great marketing, right? So so that's that's the number one thing I would say is like keep your expenses low and keep your standards high. And so, you know, as you, as you think about that, you mentioned the employee number. Are there other things that you look for in a company when you're establishing that baseline standard for the company that you want to work with? That's a great question because this is going to really um, depend a lot, you know, on your industry, right? There's a lot of copywriters that work with coaches. So it's like, how could you tell like a coach they're not going to have an employee headcount on LinkedIn? Like, well, you could check their Instagram, right? If they have like, 50,000 followers and, you know, 700 likes on every post, they probably have some money. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully, right? That's a big, Instagram is a huge platform for life coaches and, you know, course creators and and stuff like that. Um, So that would be something you could check. You could also check like um, built with, like to see what kind of like tools they're running on their website, um, builtwith.com. Like just see, you know, check their website and see like what they're using. Like if they're using Wix and like nothing else, like they might not have like, they're not spending a lot on marketing. They don't have like kind of sophisticated things set up. But if you can see like they've got Optin Monster and they've got, you know, an analytics suite and like some things like that, like, okay, they're already kind of investing, you know, paying, you know, something for marketing. So kind of like sleuth around and see what you can um, find. Like for me in SaaS, it's, you know, the headcount and it's also um, the level of complexity and like the audience. I do not love to work for SaaS companies that target software developers and engineers. A lot of people are like, there's no way I could write for SaaS companies. It's way too complicated. No, it's not. If the audience is not technical. It doesn't really actually matter what the product or service is. It's all about the audience because most SaaS companies, the target audience could be a solopreneur. It could be um, the head of marketing. It could be an office manager, right? So I really avoid working for SaaS companies that target highly technical audiences um, because I just don't want to. (laughs) 
Um, so that's one, you know, I'm trying to think of, uh, of some other things with SaaS, also the UX, I do not want to work with a SaaS company that has really bad design of their product. So I try to kind of like pay attention to like some screenshots that are available. Um, I see if there's like a demo video I could watch right away or sign up for a free trial. If the product is really crappy, um, not only do I want to not sell it, but it also shows you that they're not investing money in like UX and in design, which is like a really bad sign for a SaaS company if they're not trying to differentiate and impress their audience with design. That's very bad news. Um, so yeah, you can kind of think about what are some of like the companies or coaches or consultants, whatever that you want to work with and check out their platforms. Like what does their social media look like? What does their website look like? You know, like what can you find out about them? And then kind of set that bar and try to figure out your own criteria and um, know what you will wiggle on and then know what you won't. I I love that you're sharing all of this because I this is these are the questions that pop up so frequently especially with newer copywriters like how do I know if they have money or not to pay me? Um so these are great tips. Could you also include what are you know a couple questions you may ask on a sales call and I know this is specifically speaking to SaaS companies but what would be like you know two or three questions you could ask that would tell you right away if they have money or not. Yeah. So um, my favorite thing to ask, and I started putting this in my contact form so that I can, you know, get to this before I even waste my time on a call. And that question is, how are you currently acquiring customers? Because that lets me know where they're at. Like, you know, if it's like, okay, word of mouth or not yet. <laughs> then I typically don't work with them. You know, maybe I would have a few years ago, but at this point in my career, if it's word or mouth or nothing, you know, I'm pretty much out. Um, then they might say, um, if they say outbound or cold email or sales team, then that tells me that, you know, they have salespeople who are doing um, you know, SDR sales development representative activities, they're doing cold outbound, they're doing, you know, cold calling, email, LinkedIn, something like that. But maybe they don't have like content marketing set up, right? So that that tells me I, like, I'm, I'm cool with that. That's somebody that they've got sales working, which is very foundational for a B2B SaaS company, but they don't have maybe some other channels yet. They don't have ads, you know, yet. So maybe that's an opportunity to work with them on ad copy and ad landing pages. Um, if they say like, you know, every channel under the sun, then that shows me it's a very um, established organization that probably has, you know, 30 people on the marketing team. Um, and that means I'm going to pay a bit more attention to what they're asking me, because then I might be interfacing with just one team. And so I want to pay attention to who's the contact. Right. Um, so it's it's kind of uh, that's one of those questions where you can see where are they at already and where might they want you to hop in. Um, another question that I ask in my lead form is um, what problem does your product solve? Because in B2B SaaS, that's huge. Right. What, why does it even exist? So I like to see how much effort they put into answering that. 
Um, because then that will show me like, are they just really lazy? It's like, oh, it does this. Or they give me a few sentences. Like, why does this thing even exist? Right. Um, and I did used to ask those questions on sales calls. I just put them in my contact form just to protect my time a little bit better. Um, but yeah, so I would say for, for anybody listening to try to figure out what could you ask that shows what have they already spent money on? Um, and then, you know, and then figure out, is this business going to stick around? For SaaS, it's what is what problem does your product solve? But for, for something else, it could be, you know, what transformation do you provide? Or, you know, how do you retain your clients? Like if it's a coach, right? It's like, oh, so what programs do you have that like retain your clients? And they might say, oh, we have like this 12-month group coaching program that's got 50 people in it. And you're like, okay, cool. So this coach kind of knows what they're doing. They have, you know, like a program that, you know, brings in revenue every month versus, you know, they don't have an answer to that question. And then it's like, okay, they might just be starting out and they're just selling one-off sessions. And maybe that's not somebody that you want to work with. So um, yeah, poking around at what are they spending money on and how are they making money? I love it. Uh, listening to that too confirms that I'm doing a lot of right things in my own process, especially working with SaaS clients. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you repeat some of those things. So let's break in here and talk just a little bit about a couple of the things that uh, Deanna has been talking about. Uh, the first thing that stood out to me, Tiffany, is you know when she's talking about these certifications that she got first as a copy editor and then in SEO and the value of certifications for copywriters. Oftentimes, I'll see in the Copywriter Club uh, Facebook group people talking about, oh, it, you know, certifications don't matter. Clients don't really care about that stuff. And to me, the real value isn't that you get a badge on your site or the clients are actually going to care, but it's the things that you learn, but also the confidence that you gain as you study a skill and you know you you start to do projects and and explore those that expertise and and doing things so you know certifications are valuable but maybe in a different way than a lot of people think what what do you think about that you've got a couple certifications yeah exactly rob um i do have certifications from copy hackers and just like diana said um they helped me to feel more confident. Um, and I think it depends on your personality. Uh, for some people, they can just jump in and, um, and go for it and, and get clients. But then there's other people who really want to have um, a structured approach to um, their learning. And they'd like to have something to point to to say, hey, I am qualified to do this. And, and that's great. Yeah, oftentimes when you go through a program where you get a certification, you learn a framework or you, know, you might get a set of tools a process, something like that. And that can be really valuable too. So yeah, you know, again, impressed that Diana went and got that as she was starting out in her business so that she could actually know what she was doing. And it's something that a lot of copywriters may want to consider in their business. Uh, another thing that really stood out to me, you know, we've talked about Upwork several times on the podcast before, uh, but Diana's advice about how to make Upwork work for you, uh, improving her profile like over and over like every time she gets a project updating that raising her prices consistently sometimes every other week or so uh just i think upwork gets a lot of um a lot of negative 
talk about it, uh, you know, as a bad place where it's you know, price driven, bad clients, and that's not necessarily uh, untrue, but there are definitely ways to make Upwork work for a copywriter that's willing to go in there and do the things that, uh, you know, you have to do with working with any client and with our own personal websites, it's really treating it as a channel for your business. Yeah. Upwork is, it's a tool. I mean, it's a mixed bag, but um, it's ultimately a place where you can dive in and see if you, if copywriting is actually for you and see if you want to work with clients because it's, uh, it's a lot different actually doing it than, you know, dreaming about it. So um, I've used Upwork before and I found some great clients there. And I also know some people who've been there making very little money for a long time. So uh, it's up to you. You certainly don't have to use it. But if you do, you can find success by doing the things that Diana did. Yeah, you don't have to be stuck there working for you know pennies, pennies for the word or terrible clients. There are ways to make it work. In fact, we talked with uh, Danny Margulies in way back in episode 19 about his strategies for finding great clients and up leveling too. So if you've been listening to what Deanna said and thought, hey, maybe Upwork uh, could work for me, check out that episode as well. And I, I think I would just complete you know, my thoughts around what Diana was saying in that I really like the way she uses Upwork or she used Upwork to level up from one client to the next. So, you know, she wasn't because she was raising her prices very, you know, constantly because she was updating her portfolio there and her profile page. Uh, she wasn't stuck working with the low budget clients, but she would leverage each one to work with a slightly better client and to the point where she was billing, you know, $175 an hour, which for a lot of copywriters not on Upwork, that's a pretty good hourly rate. And uh, yeah, so no uh, no um, complaints there about the success that she found. And there's something else that um, other copywriters might be able to implement in their own businesses. What else stood out to you, Tiffany, from the, the stuff that we've heard so far in the interview? Well, I loved how she talked about uh, exploring different types of writing before she settled on um, a discipline. I think it's a really good idea to give yourself a chance to see what suits you uh, before you settle into um, you know, a specialty. Um, and for her, copywriting happened to be that thing, but um, it, it could have been editing or, um, or blogging. And I, I think when you're getting into business for yourself, the important thing is to make sure that it's a business that works for you instead of trying to you know, emulate someone else's career. Yeah, there's, there's this saying in the SaaS world, you know, where people talk about product market fit, you know, making the thing that you create work for the market so that people actually buy the thing that you create. But there's also this idea of the founder product fit or the founder market fit where you, the person that's creating the product, also need to like what you're doing. And, you know, there's, there's no point in creating a business that you're not going to love long-term. And so playing around with a lot of different ideas. Uh, we talked about that with Brie Weber earlier this year, you know, when she talked about the ideas that she was going through as she was, you know, experimenting with what she wanted to do to make money. And I, I think even once you settle into copywriting, exploring different niches, exploring, you know, different kinds of deliverables that you want to work on is also part of that process experimentation keeps things fresh and the thing that you start off doing that feels good is going to change um, the more experience you have under your belt and the more that you improve your skills. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, 
and the more we play around, the more likely we are to find the thing that really is a good fit for us and for our business. Um, one other thing that kind of goes along with what you're saying there that really stood out to me is how Deanna really dialed in on her ideal client. You know, when she was talking about uh, who she likes to work with and who she doesn't like to work with, that you know, she's very specific. She wants to work with companies that are funded and profitable. She uh, mentioned, I think, that uh, she wanted to work with companies that had between 20 and 1,000 employees. So it's that SMB space that people talk about. Um, being very specific about your ideal client is really smart because, as, and as she pointed out, then she doesn't take clients that aren't a fit for her. She's not, you know, working late at night or she's not trying to do things that, um, that she really doesn't like to do. She's, uh, lucky that she's gotten to that point in her business or maybe not lucky is the wrong word because she's worked hard to get to that point in her business, but it's something that I think more of us could really dial into who is that ideal client. Sam Woods talked about that in an old podcast as well, episode 13. And if you listen to that, he really goes all in on like exactly how much money, exactly how many employees, exactly where they are in their business and, and launching tools. So I think that's something that more of us should be doing. Yeah, I loved her advice to have high standards from the start, um, because when you're first diving in, there's a temptation to just take anyone who's willing to hire you, but that's a mistake and it can lead to a lot of misery and the feeling that maybe copywriting isn't for you when the issue is that you just need to be clear, clearer about what sort of clients make you want to get out of bed in the morning. Tiffany, is there anything else that stood out to you from our discussion or from what Kira and I were talking with Deanna about up to this point? From a personal perspective, I loved hearing her her origin story about how she was a stay-at-home mom married to an engineer. I also uh, had a season of being a stay-at-home mom married to an engineer. And, um, you know, the reality is uh, that 34% of stay-at-home mothers are living in poverty. And unfortunately, a lot of them don't know how to help contribute to their uh, household income uh, while being a primary caregiver. So um, I think that Diana's story is really inspirational for um, any parent who is looking for a ticket into a better lifestyle through writing. Yeah. When you shared that stat, I thought, wow, that's a, that's amazing that, you know, so many people are are struggling at that level. It shouldn't be amazing because it's in the news and, you know, we hear that kind of thing all the time, but uh, having copywriting as a doorway to something better is uh, it's awesome that you know so many of us are able to do it. And I agree. I think Deanna's story about how she has grown her business from where she you know from where she started to where she is now is incredibly inspirational and something that uh, should keep more of us going. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's go back to our interview with Diana and ask all about pitching clients. Diana, I also want to ask about your pitches. You know, you said that you were really fearless when you, you know, started out pitching and, and you had to bring in the work. Um, I'm curious about what that looked like at that early stage in your business. And also, how has that changed as your business has grown and you're working with more mature clients? How, you know, what do your pitches look like today? Um, so my top tip for pitching is to batch your customization. 
So I'm gonna explain this like so. So as a website copywriter, I could look at a site and say, oh, it has nice design, but the messaging isn't clear or it's too technical or it's missing out on headlines. You know, like SaaS websites, they'll say like, our features, why, blah, blah. You're like, that's really missing. (laughs) That headline doesn't say anything. That's like such a missed opportunity, right? So for whatever you do, see if you can sleuth out some issues and come up with like three to five issues. And then you put that in a drop down in your spreadsheet. So as you're building your list of your target companies, select which issue they have. And then you can send a custom email because it's like it has that problem in the the opener. Like, hey, I was noticed on your website blah, blah, blah issue. So it looks like it's like you spent this time to write a custom sentence for each one, but you're actually just selecting a custom sentence from a dropdown. So on the copy side, um, that's something I do, which if you think about it in email marketing, that's like the segmenting your, your email list sort of thing, right? It's just doing it for cold email. So segmenting your, your list and your copy is super important. In terms of finding the companies, um, figure out where they might be. So find a great podcast. So like this podcast, if you want to work with copywriters, right? Maybe you're an editor and you want to work for copywriters. You could cold pitch every single person that's ever been interviewed on this podcast. Um, You could go back, you know, hundreds of episodes and there's, you know, a great list for you. So uh, that like finding those sources is a much better way to find leads rather than like sticking criteria in LinkedIn, right? Like trying to do searches in LinkedIn for certain companies, like find the source where those people are and then, you know, find 10 of those sources and all of a sudden you've got, you know, 500 or a thousand leads. So that's my top tip there and like set a cadence, right? So it's like, okay, I'm going to do five per day or 10 per day, like figure out what, what your goal is, how much time you have and just make yourself, you know, do that. And that'll also be good for your, your email deliverability. So you don't like freak out the, you know, the email tech by like spamming all these people. And it just looks like these normal conversations. And also with those custom, um, you know, semi-custom for sentences, they're gonna get higher opens and higher um, replies, especially because if it's the first sentence that's custom, it shows up in their email preview, right? So that increases the opens, not just the replies. What they look like now is, I have um, not been pitching for my SaaS copy business because I rank in Google for SaaS copywriter. So I have like more leads than I need. Um, But I am beginning to um, pitch for my new business, which is exciting. So I'm starting to build a list for my new um, pitch and profit business, which is all about using digital PR to rank for SEO. So like a service that I'm offering is training marketing interns and assistants in digital PR, because a lot of it is like, you know, manual 
grunt work. There's just no way around the fact that PR is a lot of manual grunt work because there's the research, there's the pitching, there's the follow-up. Um, so yeah, so I haven't started pitching for this business yet, but I'm excited to do it, especially because cold email was so important for my first business. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think that cold email is a great way to start. Um, it gets a lot of, uh, it gets a bad rap, but, or rep, I don't know, but it gives you better inbound marketing. So like, that's what I urge copywriters when they don't want to do cold pitching. I urge them to do it because you can target who you want. And then you're going to get that testimonial, that logo, that case study, that portfolio piece. And then guess what? That's going to make all your other marketing work better, right? Because if I just put SaaS copywriter on my website, but I didn't have amazing SaaS portfolio pieces, logos, and testimonials, why would anybody hire me? So use cold email as a way to make all your other marketing work way better because you get those foundational pieces that you need and you get to choose. You know, people glorify, oh, I don't pitch. I don't do that. I don't have to cold pitch. So that's cool if you've already built all these things up. But if you haven't built up that foundation, what you're saying is that you're not necessarily like choosing what you're what you're going after. Right. And then also not everybody is great at social media. Right. Social media for me, uh, having bipolar disorder on the manic side is incredibly triggering. If I were on social media every day, I wouldn't sleep, you know. So I also uh, I also get a little annoyed when people like brag about not cold pitching because it's like, uh, it, it works. It gives you that foundation of your portfolio, your testimonials. Plus for a lot of people who struggle with social media for so many reasons, it allows you to build your business without having to be on social media. And there's dozens of reasons why people struggle to be on social media. I love that you're sharing that because you're right. It's not every marketing channel works for every person. We're all built differently and working under different conditions. And so there are different options that we can take advantage of. Um, can Do you mind talking a little bit more about working as a business owner with bipolar disorder and how you've managed it? I mean, sharing one, that you, you don't go on social media as much or use it as a channel. Um, what else do you need to do to navigate through the ups and downs of business? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I think it's um, I think it's a good conversation, you know, to have. Um, at times, it can feel like having a um, like a handicap or a disability because we're told, you know, to do all these things. Like, right? It's like if you want to grow your TikTok account, you know, post one to three times a day or Instagram, do five stories a day plus a grid feed post, like, you know, it's a lot. So we're told all these things. And sometimes I get frustrated because I'm like, well, technically I could do those. I'm creative enough. I know how to use these things, but the reality is I cannot do them, you know, even with, um, you know, medication to help, which I'm on, I still cannot like do those things or I just wouldn't sleep. And then I'm like all wigged out and then I can't focus on work and then I can't focus on you know, being a good mom. So I have to, um, like, I, I try to just be in social media just a small amount, like once or twice per week, just for like 15 minutes, um, just because you got to keep up with like messages, right? Because even if you don't necessarily want social media to be a big channel, 
you know, you can still get like messages and leads in there. Um, so that's one thing I do. Another thing is like, I'm very um, extreme on my schedule. So like on the days that I work past like 4 p.m., I'll just never sleep good. And my brain will just get going with ideas and I just won't be able to shut it off. So like I don't work with um, companies in Asia. Like like I, I'm not going to talk with somebody in Singapore because they're going to have to talk to me at 5 or 6 p.m. Um, that can be a problem with Australian clients because like I could work with Australian clients and talk with them at two or three, but they might have a lot of Asian customers because Australian you know, companies tend to have a lot of Asian customers. So then they might, if I do the, the customer research interviews, because I do those with every copywriting project. So if I'm having to interview their customers at six o'clock my time, that's not going to work. So, you know, I just ask them like, okay, if I'm going to do um, customer research, like where are your customers? Now, some Australian companies are targeting Americans more. So they're like, oh, it'll just be people in the US or whatever, right? So it's it's just about my schedule. Like that's really it, right? Because I want to keep to my schedule. So I work with a lot of European companies um, because, you know, like I'm in California. So eight o'clock in the morning for me is like 5 p.m. for them. A lot of um, Europeans like work until 6 p.m. It's kind of like, you know, New York City, like a little bit like later schedule. So then that works well, um, you know, just keeping your schedule and you don't have to explain it to anybody or, you know, you just, that's your Calendly schedule. It's from or whatever tool you use, you know, it starts here and it ends there. And if a client asks you for a sales call outside of it, then, you know, you don't necessarily have to take that. Um, and then I also just really pay attention not to overbook myself because, if I'm even a tiny bit overbooked, the amount of anxiety is just absolutely not worth it. Um, so I just use Trello to like plan projects out. So when I'm like having a sales call, I just kind of look at my Trello board. I'll just have one column per week and see how much is already in that week. Um, I think that when you're in the beginning of your business, we're all worried like, how do I get more clients? How do I get more clients? But then you come to the point where you got to make sure you're not overbooking yourself. And that's a challenge, right? That's like a constant juggling act. It's like constantly trying to calculate things and figure things out. So I give that the time it deserves. Like I'm always looking at that Trello board and kind of moving things around and figuring it out. So, you know, make sure that you are, you know, taking care of yourself and have a system for very accurate scheduling and booking. Now I know some people have a VA doing that. I that seems like an amazing feat to train a VA to book for you. I haven't figured that out. Maybe someday I will. Diana, I want to uh, ask more about digital PR and the work that you do there. You know, as I'm thinking about, you know, my business or, you know, some of the businesses of copywriters who might be listening, like what should we be doing to get more digital PR? First question. And maybe a second question is uh, how can we do more digital PR for our clients? Mm, yeah. Um, so with digital PR, the first step is to kind of figure out, you know, your goals. Like, do you just want backlinks and driving down the cost of backlinks to SEO posts and pages? Or do you also want to get in front of new audiences 
and, you know, grow your email list or, you know what I mean? Get more people coming back to your site and grabbing a freebie, like kind of figure out the goal first. For me personally, I like to do, you know, an and conversation instead of an or conversation. So when I look at digital PR, I want the backlink to a specific poster page. I want to get in front of a relevant audience and I want to have something that I'm going to be proud to share on social media. Um, so I don't just want to like get on any crappy, crazy looking website, um, you know, and then have something that I'm not even going to want to like, you know, share. Um, so I kind of like look at all, you know, three of those things. So that comes down to like that research criteria, right? So if, if you want the backlink, you have to think, can you control the anchor text that's linking back to your website? So like guest posts are really popular you know, form of digital PR because people can control the anchor text. But you can do that with a podcast interview too, because at the end you can say, hey, go to website.com forward slash page. And then you've just controlled the anchor text because the podcast hosts are going to link to that specific page, right? So then you get, and, and if the page is SEO optimized and if it's short enough, then you're going to get traffic from people listening because the URL should be simple enough. They can just type it in. Then you can get traffic from people clicking through from the show notes. And then you can get traffic because if that, if that backlink is going to that SEO page, you get enough of those backlinks plus the page is really high quality, then you can rank it in, you know, Google search and then, of course, you can also share it on social media, stay top of mind with your existing audience. Um, so that's like the way that I look at digital PR is I want it to do all of those things for me. Um, in terms of getting more coverage, niche is a big factor here, like getting clear on that expertise, um, you know, having that media bio, knowing what your niche is, making sure it's clear across all your social media profiles and your website, like, you know, just update that so that it's like, you know, very cohesive. And then, you know, a great first start is like pitching people and companies that you already know. Um, so one, one unexpected source of publicity would be to be a case study. So for example, um, I was like, I'm not as into selling cold email at this point, but a couple years ago, I was selling cold email as a service, you know, cold email writing as a service for SaaS companies. And I was doing cold email for myself. And so I, I was like, okay, I'm using reply.io as the tool. So I reached out to them and was like, I'd love to be a case study because I'm getting like 80% open rates and 40% reply rates on my cold emails using reply, you know, as the automation tool for like the follow-up and everything. And so um, they interviewed me and then I was a case study. So then um, I used that to like sell my services, like my cold email services. If somebody would fill out my contact form and they asked about um, being, or they asked about like if I could write cold email or they saw my cold email service page, whatever, then I would follow up in the follow-up email. I'd be like, oh yeah, these are my rates. And like, here's this case study and like that shows a lot, right? It's like, okay, you're a case study for a cold email software showing how good your cold emails are, right? So figure out how can you link your service to the 
PR, like make your PR as close to your service as possible so that it's not just that little blip in the pan or a flash in the pan. I can't talk today. (laughs) Blip in the pan. Anyways, um, so that you can also use it in your sales, like use it in a nurture sequence, right? Because you could put it in, um, you know, an automated sequence that was about, you know, three tips for cold email. And then, and then it's in there. And then at the end, it's like, Hey, like, do you want me to write your cold emails? Like, you know, just reply, like, and we'll talk or schedule a call with me here. Um, so getting really clear on what you're selling and then just reaching out to whether it's like other companies like that, a case study, or it's a podcast interview, or it's like a a guest post, or you're reaching out to entrepreneur and Forbes contributors saying, Hey, I can contribute a quote, um, you know, get very specific. Don't use digital PR for like your top of funnel content. Use it for like the very bottom of the funnel of what you are selling. Diana, can you talk about your your business as a whole and how you have approached building your business model? Because you have these two sides, right? It's like sounds like the PR side and then you have the services for SaaS companies. How does it all fit together and how how did you approach it when you built it? So um, I launched Pitch and Profit six months ago. And the motivation um, at the beginning started with wanting a horizontal niche. So I have a vertical niche because um, for anybody listening, the difference is vertical is the type of company or the type of business, right? So that could be SaaS, healthcare, law, um, you know, like life coaching, right? That's a vertical. And then the horizontal is the type of thing that you do. So um, email copy, writing case studies, writing ads, right? Those are the horizontals. So I was kind of like looking at people whose businesses I admire, like, you know, Tarzan Kay having her, like being known for emails, um, Ali Bjork being known for tiny offers. So I was kind of thinking like, where do I want to go next? Um, my SaaS copywriting business uh, is an amazing like foundation, but I was thinking like, how can I come up with something that's more scalable? And I personally don't have enough sanity to run an agency. <laughs> and everybody I know who has an agency is trying to like get out of it. <laughs> like they're trying to like innovate themselves out of it. So I was like, I'm not creating an agency. That's just not what it's going to be. Right. So I was like, okay, what's going to be my horizontal? So I was thinking about different things. And I was thinking about how I'm going to help my husband grow his uh, sustainable construction and engineering startup. And I was like, publicity, like I love, I love publicity. So that was how I came to like, choose this business. Um, at this point, they are separate businesses, though I do have some, you know, crossover with the clientele, like some SaaS clients that I'm selling them this new service. Um, so what I wanted to do was like, okay, now publicity, how can I differentiate this? I'm thinking, what can my differentiators be? So I decided they would be using publicity for SEO and then also avoiding agencies because what I noticed was, you know, it was very hard for me to do my own publicity. Like it's so hard to DIY your publicity because it's so much grunt work, right? There's so much research and follow up. Um, But then I was also like, well, I'm not going to hire like a PR agency because that's pretty expensive. 
So then I thought, all right, my differentiator can be training, you know, your virtual assistant or your intern in publicity. And that doesn't have to be monthly. That could be project based. Like you could do a one-time project and, you know, hire a VA to make a list of, you know, 200 um, contributors who cover businesses just like yours. And you can connect with those contributors on social media, follow them, comment on their stuff, and then pitch them, right? So that could be like a project-based. So that was how I came up with this, was wanting that horizontal, choosing publicity, choosing those two differentiators of SEO, and then you know freelancer training. And then I was like, all right, now we need the offers. So I have um, three main offers. One is when somebody just buys the $400, um, you know, PR team training course. The other is when somebody buys the course, plus they want me for hands-on training. So in that case, I, you know, talk with the business owner or the head of marketing. We go, we would develop the strategy. Then I fill out the briefs for the VA Um, like the briefs are part of my course, but then I fill them out so that the, you know, CEO or marketing person doesn't have to. Then I tell the VA which videos to watch. Um, So they kind of like have common grounds. We're on the same page. So they know here's the brief, which training videos to watch. Then we do two months of coaching for like you know, implementation, very specific, like drilling down into their more like specific scenario. So with that package, um, you know, I can charge more than if I was just doing the service because they're buying the course too. So, you know, it gives me a bit more, um, you know, revenue, but part of it is scalable. So it's like half of it is scalable because it's a course and then half of it is not because it's my time. And then the third offer is um, like doing list building and like strategy for them. Like if they just want like a quick start. So that's like, okay, let's, let's talk through your strategy, figure out what you're going for. And then I'll build a list of um, ideal outlets and, you know, some story pitches and your media bio. The cool thing about that is that I do outsource part of that. So I outsource like the research and the contact stuff to my VA. Um, And then I do like the headlines and the media bios and things like that. So it gives me a business that's, you know, partly scalable, partly requires my time, and then partly doesn't because there's things that my VA can do. And there's things that um, are just in the program right away. I I love this like broad look at your business and how it all fits together. It's so helpful, you know, to see a business that's built out so intelligently. And I I mean, I, again, I have probably another dozen questions that we could ask about that, but unfortunately we're out of time. So we may need to have you come back for, you know, a part two at some point or have you come into, you know, the copywriter underground and, and share more depth about, you know, how you've built this kind of a business, Diana. It's, I mean, it's phenomenal. So thank you for sharing all of that. Um, but barring that, like if somebody wants to connect with you, find out more about, you know, what you do, how you do it, they're, they're interested in, you know, d- digital PR, your course, all that, where should they go to learn more? Yeah. So um, I would love to come back. We could do a debrief, 
you know, because this is six months in the making. So we could give it like a year or two years. And it's like, okay, can you switch all the way to horizontal, a scalable, you know, we could, we could kind of dive into some, some good and some bad along the way. Um, but to, to find me, you can go to pitchandprofit.com forward slash SEO dash PR. Um, and there you will find, you know, my SEO PR strategy and my checklist and, you know, services that you could um, buy, not even necessarily mine, but just, you know, information on like, how do SEO PR go together? How do they not? Um, you know, all of that good stuff. And to to kind of wrap that up, just the, the quickest way that I like to explain SEO and PR is SEO is you telling Google who you are, and then PR is other websites telling Google who you are so that you're not just tooting your own horn. So Google has information coming from all over the place that this is, you know, the SaaS copywriter, or this is, you know, the digital PR strategist, like, so that Google's got it from all angles, and they've got no choice but to rank you, because you are, you know, the authority. So yeah, again, it's pitchandprofit.com forward slash SEO dash PR. So that's the end of our interview with Deanna Mayfield. Before we go, I think we should touch on just a couple more things that uh, she was talking about. First, these, this idea going back to, we, we mentioned it, I think in the first segment, but she talked about it more here, this idea of fearless pitching. And when we've talked about pitching in the past, uh, you know, there's we've had guests that have come on and shared really good strategies for how to pitch, how to cold pitch, how to get through, um, you know, that process. But, you know, I love that she calls it fearless pitching because even with processes, even when we know we need to do it in order to attract those first clients, or you know, maybe we're even a year or two into our business and we're at a dry spot. And so we need to go out and find you know, clients to fill those holes. We need to be fearless about it. And, uh, you know, that cold pitching process is one that uh, it's scary. The rejection is real. You know, the time put in, you know, and then we get that pushback or the rejection is hard. And so being fearless about it, I think it's just a nice frame for the idea of pitching and how we should approach it. Yeah. And the other thing I really like that she said, um, as far as customization, um, her system works because she is very clear on the problems that she wants to solve for her ideal clients. And um, so that makes the pitching process a little less intimidating and easy to be consistent with on a day-to-day basis like she talks about. Yeah, I agree. Her approach is smart and she's doing a lot of things right. Uh, and I think that goes along with you know what she was talking about in finding leads in a way that works with her business. Uh, she sort of approaches it in a non-traditional way. So um, how she described finding leads by looking at podcasts uh, versus LinkedIn the the leeway that that gives you or or the additional um you know in that you have as you pitch just again another smart strategy that uh i hadn't ever heard of anybody using podcasts in that way so something that i may try the next time i have to pitch yeah that was a very very creative approach that she shared and I think that definitely resonates with me and for anyone who um, would love to add some warmth to their pitches, that seems like a really 
a smart way to go about it. Yeah. The other idea she shared that I thought was genius was reaching out to the creator of the tool, uh, Reply IO, and offering to be a case study for them. Uh, you know, wait, what a smart way to get in front of tons of potential customers who need copywriters who understand the tool that you use. And I'm not saying that other copywriters should reach out to Reply IO and do the same thing. But, you know, if, if you're doing something amazing with ConvertKit or, you know, another email service provider, or if you're using, you know, a, another tool in a way that is bringing results for you in your business or for your clients and their businesses, reaching out to some of those companies and offering to be a case study, offering to write the case study that gets your name in front of their client base, again, is genius. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think that uh, Diana shows us that if you do a little creative thinking that there are so many opportunities to become more visible and to build your authority um, by just looking at um, your natural network and, and, and asking you know, um, the worst that will happen is someone says no, but you may end up uh, getting a surprise like she did. One last thing that really stood out to me, and I think we really ought to talk about this um, a little bit, is just the addition of the horizontal niche and the vertical niche and, you know, doing different things in your business. So as we talked about in the intro for this episode, vertical niching is when you choose a niche, you know, let's say like medical or aeronautics or, you know, coaches or something like that. And you go all in on that versus a horizontal niche, which, you know, is maybe like I want to write email uh, sequences and it doesn't really matter what the industry is. I'm just going to specialize on email or, you know, sales pages or blog posts or, you know, whatever the thing is. Um, I like that, you know, she has created not just a vertical niche for her, but that she's launching this, uh, that she's recently launched this site uh, that adds a horizontal niche to her business. And it's another way to experiment and play and do something a little bit different uh, and maybe attract a different kind of client that uh, she can you know, serve and, and again, grow her business with. That just goes to show that there are so many ways to grow your business and it's important to stay open to the possibilities um, you know, as, as you stay on your journey. Let me say just one more thing about niches before we go. I just was recently going through the salary survey that we conducted earlier this year, preparing it for the report that's gonna be shared with the underground and the underground newsletter. And one of the most interesting things that comes out of that data is around niches. Specifically, we looked at copywriters or we asked copywriters to tell us if they had a niche uh, and only worked in that niche, if they had a niche, but also worked in a few other industries and if they had no niche at all. And the copywriters who had a niche earned 96% more money than the copywriters who had no niche. And even that middle group of copywriters who have a niche but work in several different industries, different niches, they still earn almost 50% more than copywriters without a niche. And so we often think that niches are going to limit our opportunities, are going to limit our ability to make money, and the data simply just doesn't prove that out. The best thing that you can do to earn more money is to choose a niche. And I'm going to be sharing more of the details of that salary survey in uh, an upcoming episode, probably episode number 250 in a couple of weeks. So if any of that information is interesting to you, be sure to tune in in a couple of weeks. Okay, so Tiffany, is there anything else that stood out to you in this uh, interview with Deanna? Yeah, choosing a niche 
is very helpful. And I know that sometimes people hesitate to choose a niche because they think it's going to limit their options, but it actually gives you more options. Um, just because you have chosen a particular niche doesn't mean that you'll never get opportunities to to try something new. Um, it's just about positioning yourself and giving yourself um, focus and, and, and clarity in those early days so that you can grow your business faster. I just love how tenacious she's been about her career. I, I find it really inspiring and um, I look forward to implementing some of her strategies in my own business. Yeah, I agree, Tiffany. Tenacity and just the approach that Deanna brings to her business is uh, refreshing and something that we can all learn from, something that maybe we can do just a little bit better in our own businesses. We want to thank Deanna Mayfield for joining us today. If you want to connect with her or check out what she's doing with a Horizontal Niche, go to pitchandprofit.com. And if you want her SEO PR checklist, go to pitchandprofit.com forward slash SEO dash PR. That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple Podcasts to leave your review of the show. And if you're ready to invest in yourself and your copywriting business and finally achieve your goals, visit copywriterthinktank.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. And I want to thank my guest host for this episode, Tiffany Ingle. Thank you so much for joining me and, uh, you know, sharing some of your knowledge as we look back at the things that Deanna shared. It's been awesome having you here. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club. Yeah, can make you lots of money. Listen to the Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club. Can make you lots of money as long as you listen through the whole. So